today on This Is Investing, we are joined by podcaster, author, and all-around great guy, John Pigeon. John hosts the Property Podcast, This Is Property, and has just written a book, Sort Your Property Out. You are listening to This Is Investing, the show where I search the financial world for the most up-to-date investment ideas, market trends, and income streams, so you don't have to. Let's get into it. We, there is some crossover between your show and my show. So, you know, this is property is a part of the family of, you know, the greater Glenn James empire, if you will. But let's assume maybe there's some folks that don't know you and your background. Give us the quick highlights of who is John. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I've been investing in residential property personally for around 25 years now. So that means I'm getting on a bit. But yeah, look, it was always a passion of mine. When I first bought my property at 21, I went with a rent vesting strategy, which we'll, we'll no doubt talk about. But I, I really just had a an interest in it. And it was very logical for me. I, I think, well, okay, in Australia or any part of the world, people need a house to either live in uh, as, a, as a tenant or to actually buy one, which is uh, is called the Great Aussie Dream in Australia here, and um, and I, and I think that still runs true today. But twenty five years down the track, uh, I understand that there's a uh, many markets within markets and very different types of assets within assets, and s- similar to investing in any type of asset, there's uh, we've got to dig into the weeds to find the real answers. But yeah, I suppose I've been coaching and people in real estate for over 10 of those years now and uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoy either teaching them to fish or, or going to fish for them in the, in the case of our buyer's agent service. And if you do not listen to This Is Property, this is your chance to you know, hop on over there, hit the like and subscribe because John had me on it as a guest a week or two ago and we talked all things that is the crazy market of American real estate. Uh, and we can dabble into that a little bit as well if, if you want to. But, you know, I think what I took away from that conversation was just kind of how different the two markets can be. It, it does seem like Australia 
at least in your neck of the woods, you know, New South Wales area has more of a buy for the long-term appreciation. And as that is and can be the case in America, where I'm at in kind of the Great Lakes region, uh, most investors that I know are investing for real like rental property income. So they're looking for monthly cash flows. Sure, the property should keep up with inflation at least, you know, if you might be gaining two or 3% per year, but it's not like you're buying a house for a really big long-term return. If you're looking for kind of a, a bigger hit, you're looking for a depressed property, you're putting some sweat equity into it and you're flipping it within a short time to try to make just a lump sum money, kind of seems like maybe the world's upside down in Australia. Am I correct in that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. When you, when you talk to people about what they want when we're setting strategies with, uh, with our clients and when we ask them cash flow or capital growth, which one would you rather? Majority of the people say, well, both. Like, yeah. why wouldn't we want both, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. In Australia, the, the performance of real estate has been so strong in the residential sector that the yields and the cash flow aren't as easy attainable as they are in the States from from what I know. So I think we have to go about it a different way. And and you mentioned buying a discount or or adding some value through a renovation uh, to be able to increase potentially the cash flow of the yield of that property. And, and I was taught this probably 15, 16 years ago, is that uh, cash flow pays the bills and capital growth sets you free in the in the real estate markets. And I think People have come to expect capital growth in their asset that they're going to buy and, and that's the one thing that they, they definitely hang their hat on. If they can get a cash flow situation that's, um, that's neutral or, or slightly positive after tax, then, then that's a great outcome because essentially they're, they're getting both. Yeah, so I think that would be kind of the big differentiator in my brain is as a real estate investor, I, I'm down to one rental property right now. I offloaded one last year. It's just so hot right now that I don't kind of have the maybe stomach for the real estate market where I'm at because I just feel like there could be some slowdown in the future. You know, that I'm that way a little bit. I'm always probably slower to get into an investment unless it's like the right time. When it's the right time, I go guns blazing. I move real quick, both with equity investing and real estate. Most of the real estate that I've purchased in my past has been like I've had things on the radar. My wife and I will start looking at Zillow just like as a hobby, kind of goofing around. In fact, she sent me like three houses yesterday. <laughs> I'm like, put that away. I'm not ready for that right now. But like, we'll look at something and it just snap. Like if it's a good deal, it makes sense and we can do it. We'll pull the trigger like that day. You know, maybe not like we've got enough built in kind of knowledge of the area and what we're looking for that we don't need to do a ton of research so with that, I'm like a little bit slow getting into the market right now because I'm like, I don't know, like it'd have to get a little bit more leverage than I want to use. The cash flow, the yield isn't going to be there. This is building to a question because my last two rental properties, I mean, I still have the one, is yielding like 22%. So like I'm assuming that's probably not the type of yields that you guys are getting on rental cash flows in Australia. Yeah, look, if that's a gross rental yield, that's that's outstanding, Nick, and and we're not finding that anywhere in Australia in the residential space, at least. So we we calculated as rent per week times by fifty two weeks in the year divided by your purchase price times by hundred to get a percentage. So that's where generally we'd get that gross yield perspective, and and. 
commonly today in, in good real estate, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, we'd be lucky to get 3%. In maybe larger regional areas, we might get 5 to 6%. In maybe more speculative locations where the price is still somewhat uh, low, we might be getting anywhere from 8 to 10%. But that's probably about it. Uh, yeah, 2022 is uh, outstanding. And, and probably I, I think about that out loud and say, well, if we're getting 22% on a property in the residential space, it means that the growth historically has been low and the rent has been consistently increasing over the years. Yeah, which is exactly true. And it's actually 22% net. So that's. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, you hit the nail on the head. There is basically, the last couple of years, we have seen some appreciation. But when I purchased this property, it was nearly the same purchase price from the, the person bought it 25 years ago. Wow. So it's very much a flat market. There, there had been no appreciation in this house. I put in some sweat equity. You know, we did a lot of kind of modern updates in terms of painting, redoing the hard floors, painted the outside, made everything look, and you know we actually lived there for a little bit, be very attainable and livable, and it's a cute little house. But we, we were never planning on it appreciating because like we looked at yeah. what had happened, we looked at the neighborhood, and we're like, I mean, there's a chance because it's close-ish to downtown, but it's like in a neighborhood that you kind of historically haven't wanted to be in. Like it used to be a yeah. cute little neighborhood. It's across the street from this like nunnery, and this Catholic university. So it has some quaint character, but the neighborhood just got beat up. And since we've bought the property, it has appreciated. Uh, The tax man thinks it's appreciated more than I think it's appreciated. I tried to fight my tax bill, and I had the conversation with this guy on like two different Zooms, and he was like, oh, yeah, no problem. And then in the mail, I get the thing, and it's like the exact same amount. My tax bill increased 3x from what it was the last go-about, which was like three years before. I was like, my property definitely didn't 3x in the last you know, three years, but the government yeah. decided the tax value was. so They, they needed a bit more revenue, so they decided, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so the yields, mm. if you buy right, can be great, but I personally don't look at the long-term cap appreciation. Like I'm building worst-case mm. numbers. Like if I get out what I put in and I get a great cash flow for 20 or 30 years, like I'm happy, but, yeah, yeah. you know. I think that's the gist. Really, I think more of it is like the mentality of being a landlord, I think is what holds a lot of people back in the States is that I'm assuming that kind of thing transfers or do you guys really use a lot of uh, agents to kind of do a lot of the dirty work for you? Yeah, and and I think when you're on my show the other week, Nick, I, I think we discussed this a little bit in the sense that you manage your own properties. And that is extremely rare in Australia, at least in the circles that I walk in. Uh, it's very common to just outsource that to a, a professional property manager who will do all the work on your behalf the, to the point where they pay all your bills, they can organize trades for f- fixing things if they're broken, they can organize even quotes for like small renovations, for example. So it really is, and, and I say it to our clients all the time, we're treating it like a business and we're employing people to basically do the work in their professional corner while we can get on with our nine to five work. Yeah, so that would that would eat into the yield as well. Maybe it's because I'm a cheapskate. Like if my my tenant will call me and say, "Hey, there's a roof leak by the chimney or something." Like I'm literally climbing up on the roof and I'm flashing the chimney and I'm doing the stuff. So I think my self go getter attitude slash 
frugality is what maybe pushes my yield a little bit higher than the average bear. So, yeah, and and to your point though, uh, with that getting up on roof and fixing gutters and all these sort of things, a lot of it comes down to the risk profile of the individual who's buying the property as well, because a lot of buyers or a lot of investors will only want to buy local to their area, which enables them to sleep at night because they know the area and they could potentially drive past it to see if the lawns are mowed, even though they probably never will. Uh, they just get comfort in the fact that it's local and they may be able to attend to any sort of um, needs that the tenant may have. However, or the sophisticated investor that we, we like to call it here, it's more a case of, right, we're going to grow a portfolio, we're going to be strategic about it, we've got no limitations in terms of which state or city or town we invest in. We're just simply looking at the numbers and the research to then execute a, a strategy and a purchase that relates to our personal situation. When you're dealing with like a client, well, how many, I don't know if I want to ask you how many properties you own, so let's talk about a client of yours, like how many properties does your average client have that you're working with? Are we talking multiples? Like, are these kind of like stocks for them and they're just buying copious amounts up? Or is it kind of like me, maybe one, two or three? Yeah, look, the stats in Australia, our clients aside, are probably down to one to two properties is probably about the norm. Like the percentages that own three or more properties, it would be less than like 2% of the of the country's population. So it is quite rare for people to own five, six, seven properties. But in saying that, in order to build a, a, a great portfolio with a major focus in real estate as opposed to shares or superannuation or whatever else, then yeah, the four or five is is probably what we call the magic number where you don't have to deal with 20 properties at a time and 20 different property managers and 20 different hot water systems and all these things that can go wrong. We're dealing with four to five good quality assets that will perform consistently for them over the next 10 to 20 years. Stupid question, maybe. Can you buy a house inside your superannuation? You can, you can, but the rules are quite different and, and not to go into too much detail on it, but generally speaking, you may need a, a 20 to 30% deposit down. We, we, we can't um, do a renovation or we, we can't pull equity out of that property to go and buy something else within our self-managed super fund. The, the rates may be quite high or higher than, than standard residential outside of super and you'd be required to pay principal and interest versus a lot of properties outside of our super, we might pay interest only. So yeah, there's a few complexities there that, and again, a lot of the property nerds would say, okay, I've exhausted my resources in my personal name. Now let's look to our super. And I'm like, hang on a minute, even I'm being a property nerd with a bit of logic says, well, okay, if we've got three or four properties outside of our super, uh, and that's our only diversification of allocation assets, we'd be saying, okay, are we sure we want to do this? Because if you think you can do a better job than the superannuation company, you're going to have full exposure to real estate in Australia and no exposure to anything else other than real estate. So we, I would personally say that that's quite risky. Yeah. Maybe get a basket of some stocks, ETFs in there as well to help, help that mm. out a bit. Yeah. In the States, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years, but I believe last time I checked, you could not have a mortgage if you bought it within your retirement account, but you could have property, you just couldn't have the loan on it. Like you had to have enough cash to sell out, like sell stocks, have enough to buy it. But anyway, not on that. I want to learn from the wisdom of you. And as a author on a property real estate investing book, I think 
A wisdom tree can be something we uh, pass down. I haven't had the whole chance to read it. I know I just saw on Instagram you guys got your your soft slash hard copies, your physical copies, what, last week or the week before by the time this comes out. But maybe give us John's top two or three takeaways from Sort Your Property Out, things maybe that will help both a new buyer and then maybe some stuff that would help kind of an experienced real estate investor. Yeah, sure. So I think the first part of it with the the new buyer, the new investor would be understand your situation thoroughly, but see what's available to us. And and the biggest issue in Australian real estate at the moment for first home buyers is how do I get on that train? How do I save a deposit? Because the cost of living is is expensive and the cost of renting a house is, is expensive. So to be able to save up a deposit is the biggest obstacle first up for, for any young Australian. So what we talk about, in, and, and it's not necessarily a, a new concept, but it is to a lot of people who haven't been doing this for some time. And it's, and it's called free vesting, right? So you, you go and live in the the town or the city that you would like in in the nice street or, uh, with mum and dad or, or or somewhere where the the rent is quite cheap because there's multiple people living there right so let's use the living at home example and this is where the free bit comes in right we're not totally scumming off mum and dad but we're uh, we're living cheaply right and it gives us the ability to save funds faster than the average person that might be living on their own, paying full rent, insurances, petrol in the car, all these other things. And what that allows them to do is flexibility as to where they can buy around the country or, or state within the areas, but also save their deposit much quicker. So they've got more flexibility to get into the real estate markets quicker to then potentially wheel back around to buy their own home in the area that they might um, might want to live long term. Give me just one second. I'm putting a note in to ask my dad if me, my wife, and two kids can move <laughs> into the basement so I can expand my yeah. portfolio. Yes, yeah, so I actually saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think in the the Facebook community here, there was someone that had saved. They were mid thirties, and they'd saved uh, like some ridiculous amount, like eight hundred thousand Australian dollars. I'm living at home now. There's no doubt that you've got to cut the cord at some stage and move out. But I'm saying if we can do that consistently for two or three years in our early twenties, we can fast track our way into our first investment or our first property, and that gets us on the train earlier, it gives us the chance to be able to create some wealth and also live that lifestyle of living in our in our own area. And you'd be the same in the States. If you couldn't afford to buy a house where you where you lived, you don't want to go 30 minutes away from where your friends are, where your school was, where you work potentially, where your family is. Like you want to stay there. So that free vesting option is, I think, the future for the next generation coming through. There's a bit of a stigma around that in the States. I think maybe with millennials, it's getting less so, Gen Z kind of even less so, but like I'm right on the cusp. I'm an old millennial, geriatric millennial, if you want to call it that. But like even my sister, who's just three or four years older, like that would kind of be frowned upon for someone to stay at home after high school or after university. Does it carry that same thing? Like, is this a burden people have to overcome? Well, absolutely. It's a stigma from the point of view of, well, it's not cool to stay at home with mum and dad. You should be out on your own with some independence. But a lot of parents would say, well, stay at home, get yourself on the property ladder sooner. Because as I mentioned at the start of the show, it's a great Aussie dream for a lot of people. And the previous generations have have built that 
early on as well doing the hard yards so there a lot of them are actually on board it's the it's the friends of those young ones trying to do it that have the problem with it because it's it's not the done thing from a social point of view i suppose yeah sorry if you're listening kids who cares about social stigmas when you have <laughs> That's right. when you have a property and everybody else is still renting and they don't want to be renting i mean some people rent because they want to but when you did the hard thing and you sacrificed in your 20s when it wasn't cool, like in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s, wow, you're going to reap like so much more benefit. Um, there was a, a commercial that was going on maybe 10 years ago in the States, and it's like this lady who's a business. Uh, she does a lot of traveling for business, and she saves all the little shampoos. And she's like, I've, I haven't bought shampoo in three years. I'm using all that money to put in my investing account. It's like all these little things that you do that can compound on each other really do add up both if you're talking shares or you're talking mm. saving money for a down payment, the earlier the better. Like let time be on your side, not time working against you. That's definitely a great takeaway. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I want to run a, a scenario by you and you can give me advice if it's a good idea and then mm-hmm. we'll get into wisdom from the book about a wise or maybe seasoned investor, what they can take away from sort your property out. So here's a thought that I've had for a couple years. I have a son who's turning three in a couple weeks and a son who's almost six. So basically we'll, we'll round up and say three and six. They're probably going to go to university. Like that's kind of a thing. So when they decide to go to university... If I buy a house near the university that they attend, they live in that house for the four years, maybe eight years if they're stupid or they become a doctor, and they live in that house basically rent-free, and then I sell that house after those eight years, is that a good decision coming from someone who doesn't know what market I'm talking about? Yes, interesting. Nick, I get this every other week from someone reaching out to us, whether it be a clarity call or a client that's potentially looking to do it. The first question I would ask, are we combining emotion with logic? Are we saying, right, my son's going to go to, I don't know, Oklahoma University, so I'm going to buy a house there or a unit or whatever we call them over there, to give my child the comfort that the rents will never increase, that they've got the home to live in, they can concentrate on the university, that, that's the full emotion part of it. The next question I would ask is, would we buy that same dwelling in that same location if my son wasn't going to university there? Probably not. 
So we then strip that back and say, well, why are we actually doing it? Is it, uh, is it a comfort factor for us? Does my son expect it? Uh, because generally what happens with those type of scenarios, and I'm not saying it's an absolute no, don't do it, uh, but generally what happens is the rent stays low. So the yield, and, and you mentioned in the States about the yields, the major reason for going into real estate, the yield may potentially be low for you because you don't want to put the rent up on your son or you're actually paying the rent for your son. The, the, the maintenance thing is, okay, my son rings up and I've got this issue. So you're dealing directly with the tenant. Now you said that's not an issue because you manage your own property. So there's just that we need to write some pros and cons down the page and say, well, why are we doing this? Why wouldn't we do this? And see where we end up. Generally speaking, majority of the time, if we wouldn't buy there, if my son wasn't going to university, we probably shouldn't be doing it. Okay. Okay. That's good. I like that. Let me th- let me tweak the scenario a little bit. So I put $100 a month into each one of my kids' college accounts so it's called a 529 in the States, and it's designated, it's tax-free money. You use your post-tax money, and it's not taxed at the end of the day. As long as they go to, and spend that for university and university expenses, they never have to pay tax. If they don't go to college, then they can roll that into an IRA. And that was a new law that was changed by Congress. It's like, I can't believe Congress used common sense. It's kind of crazy. But I was very excited about it. So... I'm doing that right now. So here's the tweak on the university housing. Let's say that they do go to Oklahoma. It's a good university. I'd be okay if they went there. Do I buy a house tomorrow, let's say in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm managing the property, I get a mortgage, someone else, let's say the yield's definitely going to be less, but someone else is at least paying that mortgage. Let's say I'm getting $100 a month after expenses. Like I'm making something, it's kind of worth my time. But given that my sons are six and three, they've got at least 12 years before they're going to college. So I've got 12 years of somebody else paying down my house. I could then either sell the house in 12 years when they get to university, maybe even hold it on until they graduate university. So now we're looking at 16 years. Or do I just keep the house because most of the mortgage is paid down now and let it go? Any thoughts now on that scenario? Now it's more palatable because we've taken investment approach and draped an emotional thought over the top of it versus saying emotionally, I want my kid to go to university here. When they get there, I'm going to buy a unit or a house for them to live in and, and protect my baby, right? We want to invest with logic, not with emotion, right? And that's the big takeaway that I talk about in my book is emotional investors get wrapped up in the in the fluff of it all, the way the fence is um, angled and the, the color of the wallpaper and all these things that mean absolutely nothing from a growth point of view. And then family comes into it, which adds another layer to it. And all of a sudden, we look back and say, well, why did we actually do that? So yeah, that that's a more palatable outcome. We've got options up our sleeve. And as you mentioned, in 10 years, 15 years time, when they go off to university, you can sell the property when they go there or they'd never go there because that's the other thing. When your sons are three and six, do you know if they're even going to university and which university they're going to go to? So I think investing is, is yeah, the more emotion we can take out of it, the better. And usually that involves less of family being involved in that situation. 
Why can't there be ways of making money that you don't have to use emotions? Like emotions are so hard to control. <laughs> Whether you're buying a stock or buying a house, yeah. it's like we are such emotional animals. On Friday, I was dabbling a little bit in day trading, and I was day trading the Nasdaq 100 futures. And I'm I'm in this community of day traders, and everybody was like, "Okay, this is a good trade. We're we're going in at this price point." So I I commit. I buy my one contract. It quickly goes up two hundred dollars, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is going to the moon." But like, so every trade you have a stop loss and like a take yes. profit. What you're looking for, so you don't like you can never lose your shirt. You you might lose a couple hundred bucks, hmm. but so I moved the stop loss to break even because it had already moved up two hundred dollars pretty quickly, like in a minute or two. Yes. Everybody else stayed the same with the stop loss at the original agreed upon price. Of course, it comes back down, and I get stopped out at like a fifty dollar profit. And this trade goes for like $2,000. And I'm just like hand over face like, you idiot. Like I let my emotions thinking like, oh, if it comes back down, I don't want to lose money. I'm already in profit. This is great. And I wasn't able to control my emotions. And I lost, you know, $1,950 worth of potential profit. Mm. Don't day trade, kids. It's very stressful. Anyway, let's let's get back to real estate. Well, and, and and you're right. I mean, and that's why a lot of people, a lot of investors outsource it. Um, now, I, I come from the school of, as I mentioned at the start, teach someone to fish or go and fish for them. And I realized that not everyone wants to educate themselves and be involved in the in the day-to-day runnings of their, their assets. So they outsource it because they either don't trust themselves or they don't have an interest in or they don't have time. And I'm fully on board with that as well because – uh, again, a professional who's doing it every day arguably will have a better result than someone that's just dabbling in it for the first time and hoping for a great result. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a. Do you get frustrated? Do you give people great advice? You know, they come to you, they say, John, here's my scenario. Here's what I want to get done. And then you tell them the best advice ever. And they're like, ah, now I'm going to go do my other thing. It, <laughs> like, I'm assuming that happens. And does that frustrate you as a professional when you give such keen, good advice and then they're like, ah, forget it, I'm just going to do whatever? Yeah, look, it does, but it doesn't. I think at the end of the day, I'm here to provide the best knowledge and education that I can with the available information I have at hand right now. If they don't take that on board, I actually say to them, look, I'm okay with that, but at least I've given you the pros and cons of the situation. Whether you take that is purely up to you. So I'm less emotional, if you want to use that word again, than I was maybe 10 years ago when I first started doing it. Well, now that you're a published author, you can use your book as a filtering system for your, like your leads. Be like, hey, have you read Sort Your Property Out? If they haven't, like read it first, then come to me and we'll talk about it. But you want to make sure you have an educated client before they even come visit you. That's just that's free advice. You don't have to take it. So if your clients are listening, you can go see John without reading his book, but probably recommend reading the book anyway. Okay, let's let's end with some advice for an experienced investor. What is like a great takeaway that they can take from your book, Sort Your Money Out, that, I don't know, maybe they just haven't thought about. Maybe it's the best practice. Maybe it's something new. This could go for hours, Nick, and I appreciate we've only got minutes, but I talk about in there an eight-point strategy that we need to get answers to every time we go to the marketplace to purchase property. Uh, And those eight 
indicators are as even as each other. A lot of investors, and you mentioned about jumping on Zillow over the weekend, most investors in Australia, definitely the uneducated, will jump on realestate.com or domain and search for property without understanding what their borrowing capacity is, understanding what their overall goal is, understanding potentially what their price point is or their, their yield that they need in their life or for this particular property. And as a result, they're, they're looking at the location before any of these other pillars have been answered. And it's actually the last part we go or the, the last point that we refer to is our location, which sounds strange, but we need to understand what's happening in our life first and then process of elimination, we understand the best types of assets that we're going to buy for our life and our, and our uh, wealth. And then we say, right, which locations does that fit in? And how do these locations stack up in terms of historical growth and owner-occupier rates and vacancy rates and, and what yields do they give and what best asset types perform in those locations versus others? Uh, I could go on for days about it, but understanding those eight points first is really, really important. And, and I'm very passionate about teaching that to my clients. And just to, to, to bookend that, the number one problem that investors have is that they sell prematurely. They see some growth, they they put it on the table, take it off again and look back five years, 10 years time and say, I shouldn't have sold that asset. It's now gone up by X and what did I do with that money? I don't know. There's this little known American author named Mark Twain and he said, buy land, God doesn't make any of it anymore. And <laughs> That's very true, Mark. It's, you know, <laughs> I'm, uh, I have definitely sold properties too fast for various different reasons and you know just i never thought the market would keep going and i'm sure that's always the case it's like people who've seen especially if you owned a property during the great financial crisis like i did you're like oh you can lose your shirt but yes. also look at what's happened since 2008 and it's just like okay why did i ever sell anything like don't panic in the moment of a one even if it seems like a global event like it's either mm. truly going to be a global reckoning and everybody's going to be in trouble or like normal, it's probably going to work itself out and maybe the media is making money off of selling salacious stories <laughs> and it'll, it won't be as bad as maybe you first thought. Quick question. Uh, as you were talking, for some reason, I thought of uh, homeowners associations is what we call them in the States. It, you basically cannot buy a new build new construction property without having to be involved in a homeowners association of some kind. I would say the cheapest homeowners associations just exist in America to make sure your mailbox matches. Like they have to all be white and pretty and that you mow your grass and that you don't park your caravan in your driveway. And then some of them actually offer services like they mow your lawn, you know, they've got a pool or community pool. Is that a thing? in Australia? And is that something you think about a lot as an investor of like how much is the homeowners association going to be a pain in the butt? Uh, not, not really. I mean, when we're building new, uh, all builders will go through a HIA contract, uh, which is standard across Australia and has to meet HIA standards. So that from a building point of view, that needs to be ticked off by the lender and they come out and uh, and tick off on the progress of that build and then the completion release final funds once they know what should have been built actually has been built. So that that's the build side of things. When you currently, when you own an existing house, 
we don't really have an association that governs the the runnings or the standards of how people are looking after it, but it's probably the local councils that step in if there's something untoward going on, i.e. there's a big rubbish dump out the front of someone's house and it hasn't been removed or there's a there's lawn growing that's unsafe and snakes and all these wildlife that we have here in Australia. It's, it's so it's probably the local council that deals with that more than an association that you that seems so you have over there. Is that the same if you're in like a condo? Do you guys use the word condo? No, we don't. No. <laughs> so are you talking like a unit? Like, like a, an apartment? Yeah, so my first property that I purchased, actually, it's embarrassing. To get, my wife and I were like going to look for an apartment to rent. And right. we took a wrong turn and we ended up in this condo. It kind of looks like an apartment, but they're ranch-style single-story houses that are, there might be four units in one building and you've got like a shared wall and you know the condo association covers the mowing of the grass and the roof maintenance or any exterior maintenance. Yes. And basically you can't do anything to the outside of your house. You just kind of own the inside shell, if you will. Correct, yeah. So, so like in Australia, that's a unit, a set of units or a set of apartment, uh, an apartment block. So, yeah, that's that's called Strata in Australia. So we have a Strata management company that looks after all the external and all the common areas and then you as the owner individually can do not what you want but essentially internal you can paint the walls and, uh, and, and replace the carpets. Yeah. So when we first bought this place, it was 2005, got a good deal on it or what we, what we felt like was a good deal now knowing that GFC is only three years away, maybe not the greatest deal, but we got a decent deal on the property and the monthly strata fee or homeowners association was $75. The next year, now we bought it in like October, so like December, three months later, it was $100. So we're like, ah, 25 bucks a month. I guess it's not the worst thing, but we had just graduated college, so we're like kind of debt heavy. The next year went up to $150, and at the $150, one of the units was like sinking. So some some other unit like down the street from us was built on some bad clay or something, and it was like the foundation was cracking a little bit. So everybody got assessed a four or $5,000 one-time fee, and they're like, well, we can divide it up over five years and add it to your monthly fee. So we went from, in two and a half years living at this condo, a $75 a month fee up to a $325 fee. And it was just like, wow. <laughs> what in the world? And that made me so gun-shy of ever getting connected with any condo, any flat, yes. any block of things because it's just that's one thing you can't really control. Like someone else is controlling mm. those expenses and I understand the government controlling it, but as much as I can control in a real estate property, I want to control. So I've, I've kind of shied away from that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think you refer back to the Mark Twain uh, buy land. They're not making any more of it. You also have, when you do that, complete autonomy of, of that block of land yourself and you're not privy to any strata corporation or anything that uh, can can sideswipe you with with costs. And I think a lot of Australians are the same, is like, well, okay, if, if I buy in this complex of 100, uh, I'm, I'm one in, a, in a, a big pool of fish and things can change very quickly and the strata costs are definitely one of those um, and the management can also change uh, for better or for worse. So there's a lot more things out of your control when you buy that type of asset and traditionally in Australia, they are the least performers in terms of capital growth. Um, it's the, the land that goes up and the building actually depreciates. 
All right. Any last words of wisdom you want to drop on us? Oh, look, um, jump on uh, Amazon or Booktopia or wherever you are around the world and, and order my book, first of all. That's the, that's the greatest bit of wisdom. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I say that, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But I, what I've put together is something that I wanted 25 years ago and, and I wanted to be able to make sure that I had this foundational knowledge that would take me to build a successful portfolio and to avoid the mistakes that that myself and others have made before us. And, and I think uh, hopefully what we've done in this book of Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future is exactly that. It, it talks as basic as cash flow management and goal setting and habit setting right through to, to the eight-point strategy that I spoke about and building uh, advanced development um, strategies, um, subdivision and all these types of sexy stuff as we call it to, to build wealth further. So uh, generally speaking, there's no one size fits all in real estate. You've got to create a strategy that relates to you and not your next door neighbor or your friend up the road or your, or your cousin. You've got to really understand your own situation and look 10 to 15 years in advance and not the next 10 to 15 minutes. Um, John, I know your private jet is waiting for you, so we got to wrap this up. I'm sure you got to zip across to Perth and you know make some transactions over there, but we really appreciate you having you on today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on. And you've been listening to This Is Investing, the show where I search the financial world for the most up-to-date investment ideas, market trends, and income streams so you don't have to. I'm your host, Nick Bradley. We'll see you next week. This podcast is produced and published by Oregon Trail Investor in the USA. All information is for entertainment purposes only. The brand, This Is Investing, is used under license. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.